Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for bringing each person here today. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would want to say to us, both as individuals and to our church, the church we love. Give us minds to know you, eyes of faith to see you, mouths to speak your name, hearts to love you, hands to receive what only you can give, and feet that are very quick to obey the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit. I ask that you forgive the sins of the speaker, for they are many. We've come to hear your voice today, the voice of hope and healing and heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Well, as was said, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in a little place called Newtown Square, and I have to tell you, you grew up in Newtown Square? Media! Media! That's only like five miles from where I grew up. Dude, let's talk after the service. <laughs> Did you ever go to the Media Movie Theater? Yeah. All right. Awesome. <laughs> See y'all. Take it. <laughs> but I'm a huge Eagles fan. I don't know about you, but I, I grew up watching the Philadelphia Eagles. I love the Eagles. And... Uh, uh, just a big football fan. I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl this year, but how many of you are glad? How many of you are glad that the Colts won? Traitor. <laughs> how many of you are sad that the Bears lost? Raise your hand if you could care less. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there have been a lot of movies made about football. Movies like Brian's Song, I love Brian Piccolo, The Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds, <laughs> Rudy, Something for Joey, Jerry Maguire, remember those great lines, Show Me the Money, Help Me Help You, Friday Night Lights, Remember the Titans, you ever see that? Great movie, great movie. Uh, the Invincible, We Are Marshall, hey, the list goes on and on and on. Strangely enough, one of my favorite scenes about football comes from a movie called Napoleon Dynamite. You ever seen it? <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite is a low-budget comedy, and I mean low-budget comedy. Napoleon Dynamite is about a listless and alienated teenager who decides to help his new friend Pedro, vote for Pedro, win the class presidency in their small Idaho high school, while at the same time having to put up with his bizarre family life back home. See, see uh, Napoleon Dynamite has an uncle named Rico. And even though Uncle Rico is around 40 or so, he's still trying to relive the glory days of high school football. I guess back in 1982, he was the second-string quarterback on the high school football team, and even though in the movie it's now 2004, he's still fantasizing about what could have been if the coach would have only put him into the big game. He's convinced that he could have led his team to the state championships. Now get this, Uncle Rico is so desperate to get back to the past that he even goes on the internet and orders a time machine. Now, just for fun, I put together some clips of Uncle Rico so you could meet him up close and personal. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Uncle Rico. Hey, so what do you think? <laughs> it's pretty cool, I guess. Oh, 
I wish I could go back in time. I'd take state. This is pretty much the worst video ever made. Napoleon, like anyone can even know that. So you and Tammy still together? No, not really. What is that? Well, she's jealous. Says I'm living too much in 82. Yeah, I dumped her. What about your girlfriend? Well, things are getting pretty serious right now. I mean, we chat online for like two hours every day, so I guess you could say things are getting pretty serious. I'm just really trying to raise a few bucks right now so I can bring her out for a few days. Back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Watch this. That's what I'm talking about. I did it go. <laughs> How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things have been different. I'd have gone pro. In a heartbeat, I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. You know, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soulmate. Kip, I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You, you ever come across anything like time travel? Easy. I've already looked into it for myself. Right on. Right on. Is that yours? Don't touch it. It's Uncle Rico's. What's it for? It's a time machine, Napoleon. We bought it online. You're right. It works, Napoleon. You don't even know. Have you guys tried it yet? No. So many people in this country are like Uncle Rico. People who are trying to relive the glory days of high school sports. People who are stuck in the past. But it's not just people. It's churches. All across America, there are churches that I call Uncle Rico churches. Churches that are stuck in the past. Churches that are trying to relive the glory days. Now, in my line of work as the Director of Congregational Vitality for the Evangelical Covenant Church, I work with long-term established churches. Some churches that I work with are over 100 years. Some are 125, 130 35 years. And unfortunately, over time, they've become more institutional than missional. And as a result of becoming more institutional 
than missional, they're either stuck on a plateau or are in serious decline. As was said earlier, you may have grown up in one of these churches. But you, new community, are in a different kind of position than the churches that I usually work with. You see, you're a relatively new church. You're vibrant. You're energetic. You're full of life. And you have so much potential to make a difference for Christ in the city of Chicago and beyond. My question is, how do you remain missional without becoming institutional? How do you keep from becoming an Uncle Rico church, like so many other churches in America today, and therefore forfeit the opportunity that you have to make an awesome difference for Christ in the city of Chicago? Let me show you something. This is just a simple organizational dynamic curve both for profit and non-profit organizations. Every organization has a birth, and then they go through a stage called formation. Then they come to a place of stability, decline, and then death. Healthy missional churches are on this side of the curve. And by healthy, I mean pursuing Christ. By missional, I mean pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. Healthy missional churches are on this side of the curve. Institutional churches, Uncle Rico churches, churches that are stuck in the past or trying to relive the glory days of long ago, are on this side of the curve. And they're declining or they're dying as I speak. Now let me show you what happens to a healthy missional church. A healthy missional church starts here just like every other church has its beginning. But the healthy missional church grows like this. And right when they sense they're coming to a place of stability, they jump off this wave and onto another wave. And right before that wave breaks, they jump off that wave and onto another wave. Now hear me, I'm not talking about becoming trendy as a church or buying into the latest church fads that are constantly coming and going. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking about jumping off one wave of the Spirit and onto the next wave of the Spirit. To follow the Spirit wherever the Spirit leads. Because here's what healthy missional churches know. They know that stability is the enemy of vitality. And when I use this word stability, I mean a great aversion to risk. Healthy missional churches understand that stability and the sense of aversion to risk is a great enemy to vitality. Now, in the business sector, people write about this, uh, especially Jim Collins. Some of you probably read Jim Collins' book called Good to Great. And he also wrote a 35-page monograph for the social nonprofit sector as well. But I really like what Jim Collins has to say because he says, in the business world, Good is the enemy of great. But when I work with established churches, I talk about how stability is the enemy of vitality. Stability is the enemy of vitality. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ told a parable that illustrates exactly what I'm trying to say. 
So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. And if you don't have the Bible, you can follow along on the screen above. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. Again, it, or the kingdom of God, will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and has trusted his wealth to them. To the one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag. Now back then, one bag of gold was equal to 20 years of a day laborer's wages. So this was a significant amount of money that this master was entrusting to his servants. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. The master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put the money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. Take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For those who have will be given more and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And weeping and gnashing of teeth, that was a metaphor or an idiom for living with deep and awful regrets in your life. In this parable, the master holds the servants accountable for the money that he gives to them to invest. Now, the issue is not how much each servant receives. The issue is how each servant responds. One servant, the parable tells us, responded by playing it safe, whether it was fear of failure or resistance to change or just plain laziness, I don't know. He hid it in the ground. He buried the bag of gold in the ground and he played it safe. And when you read this parable, you kind of get the impression that he actually felt rather good about his strategy. 
He claimed to know the master, but in reality, he didn't know the master as well as he thought he did. Because when the master comes back, he discovers that what the master wanted was not maintenance or preservation, but multiplication. Multiplication. Yes, the servant doesn't lose anything, but he doesn't gain anything either. Big deal. At least the servant, the master tells him, could have put this money in the bank and yielded a a minimal amount of interest at least. What the master wants is multiplication, not maintenance. And this servant missed the point. Yes, the money is safe. Yes, the money is protected. Yes, the money is preserved. But in the end, this servant is left behind in terms of authority, responsibility, and influence. Because what the master wants is multiplication, not maintenance. The other two servants, of course, get this. They know exactly what the master wants, and they get right to it. They know what my father always told me, John, it takes money to make money. And they knew that the risk could swing either way. They knew that it could mean a lot in terms of return, or a little, or a loss, or even break even. But the thing is, at least they were willing to go for it. At least they were willing to try, because they knew what the master wanted was multiplication not maintenance or preservation. It's these two servants, Jesus tells us, that the master blesses. Well done, my good and faithful servant, he says. You've been faithful in a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of a lot of things. Come and enter into your master's joy and happiness. Now here's the deal. These three servants continually remind me of two kinds of churches. The first servant who plays it safe reminds me of churches that play it safe. Churches that have become institutional in nature. Churches that are way too comfortable. Churches that are way too complacent. Churches that say they care, but they really aren't doing anything about it. Churches that are stable, yes, but they're stagnant. Churches that think they're pleasing to God, when in reality they're not. These are the kind of churches today that are slowly losing kingdom influence, authority, and responsibility. And these are the kinds of churches that are just simply going to fade away into the woodwork of time. And one day Jesus will say to these churches, what were you doing? What were you doing? You missed the whole point. Now, the other two servants remind me of churches that are healthy and missional. Churches that are willing to do whatever it takes to pursue Jesus and to pursue Christ's priorities in the world in which they live. Churches that understand the times and and know what they should do. Churches that are crazy in love with Jesus, not just on an individual level, but on a congregational level. Churches that are willing to risk, willing to risk it all, because they know instinctively that Jesus did not give them the gospel for preservation. They, he gave them the gospel for multiplication. Churches that are willing and able to speak truth to the rich, give hope to the poor, and seek justice for the oppressed. These are the kinds of churches today that are slowly gaining kingdom influence, authority, and responsibility. And these are the kinds of churches that 
the Spirit of God will entrust with even more resources because they can be trusted. You know what I'm saying? They're doing the Master's will by putting to work all the blessings that Jesus had given to that particular church, and they're multiplying it and making it work for the glory of God and for the good of their city. And it's to these kinds of churches that Jesus will say, Well done. Well done, well done. Way to go, my good and faithful servants. Now, almost every parable that Jesus tells is like a mirror. And he wants us to take that parable and look into the mirror of that parable and ask questions like, which one of those characters in that parable most resembles me? And you can do this with all the parables that Jesus teaches. Or which character in this particular parable most resembles our church? So let me ask you, When you look into the mirror of Jesus' parable about these three servants, which one of these servants most closely describes you in terms of you living out the mission and message of Jesus in your own specific context? And as you look into the mirror of the parable, which servant most closely describes you on a congregational level in terms of you as as a body of Christ? not just as individuals, but as a body of Christ living out together the mission and ministry of Jesus in the city of Chicago and beyond. Well, let me help you answer these questions by giving you a few more questions. By the way, I don't have the answers today, but I did come with some questions. And the answers are not in the data that I'm presenting today. The answers are in the conversations you have about this information as the Holy Spirit leads and guides your conversations. So here are some questions that I'd like to ask you to help you discern which of the characters in the parable today most closely resembles you and your degree of living out the mission and message of Jesus as an individual and as a part of this congregation called New Community. Look at this. If New Community ceased to exist, would the city of Chicago weep? Would anyone in the surrounding communities even notice? Would anyone even care? What is it about our experience with Jesus that the city of Chicago cannot live without? How do we use what Jesus has given us right now and multiply it for the glory of God and for the good of our city? How do we view and handle conflict that will inevitably arise due to various differences we bring to the table. And those differences may be ethnicity, class, whether we're married or single, whether we have kids or not, even the differences that we carry into this church based on where we grew up, whether we grew up in an urban context, a suburban context, a town and country context, even to the point of what was your birth order in your family of origin. Those differences and more are what we bring to the table at New Community. And those differences are beautiful. And I say, viva la différence. Those, those differences are beautiful and they add to the richness and the texture of what it means to be the body of Christ. You know what I'm saying? And out of these differences conflict is going to naturally arise, and that's normal and natural. In fact, if you don't have conflict, you aren't alive. You know what I'm saying? 
The question is, how do we work through these natural and normal and inevitable conflicts in a way that is civil and Christ-honoring and compassionate? How do we work through these conflicts that normally and naturally arise in a way that results in authentic Christian community? Here's another question. What are the critical areas in which new community can be more dependent on the Spirit of God for? Do we see the church as a safe haven from change or as a change agent in the world? As a church, how do we continually challenge ourselves to move forward into God's future? And we could apply that on the individual level as well. As, a, as an individual follower of Jesus, how do you challenge yourself to move forward in Him? What is the difference between doing church and being church? What's the level of spiritual desperation, brokenness, and joy in our congregation, and I might add, in your own life? What are the normal and natural ways people come to Christ? What are the normal and natural ways people grow in Christ? What are the normal and natural ways people discover and deploy their spiritual gifts that are given to them by the Holy Spirit? Hey, listen, you may love what the Spirit of God is doing here at New Community, but my question is, what are you doing to join in on what God is doing here? Did you realize that who God made you to be greatly influences the ministry He wants you to do? Who God made you to be greatly influences the ministry that He wants you to do. So I just like to ask you, when it comes to your involvement here at New Community, an alive, vibrant, energetic, full of the Spirit church, Christ-honoring church, are you going to be a spectator, a bench warmer, or a player that gets in the game and joyfully and thankfully uses the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to make a difference in this community and in the city of Chicago. Saw all the names up there during the offering. Man, I praise God for those of you who have chosen to get out of the stands and off the bench and into the game. Because I'm telling you, when you're a player for Jesus, you feel His joy when you serve in the area of your giftedness. And that's one of the marks of a healthy missional church and a healthy missional follower of Jesus as well. And last, do the people believe in the leaders and do the leaders believe in the people? You know, I think Jesus wants the church to have such a high degree and level of collegiality, collaboration, some call it esprit de corps, that there's almost very little difference between clergy and laity. Some, some people call this claity. That there would be such a high level of cooperation and collaboration that it would be almost impossible to tell who's, who's on staff here and who's not, who's in leadership and who's not, because there is so much unity and collaboration and working together. And I'm telling you, man, that warms the heart of God because when the church is working together like that, when the people believe in the leaders and the leaders believe in the people, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an unstoppable force in terms of changing 
from the inside out through the love and truth of Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? That's the kind of church that Jesus wants new community to be, where the people believe in the leaders and the leaders believe in the people. All these questions and more are the kinds of questions that healthy missional churches tend to ask themselves along the journey. And I can tell you from personal experience that once a church, any church, even this church, once a church stops asking these kinds of healthy missional questions, it's only a matter of time before status quo sets in and institutionalism takes over. And soon that vibrant church that was once a light-filled city on a hill, over time has become a little sleepy hollow whose lights have all but flickered out. But churches who ask these kinds of healthy missional questions along the way, both individually and congregationally, no matter how painful or uncomfortable these kinds of conversations may be, these are the very questions that will keep you in good steed when it comes to doing church and being church and making a difference for Jesus in the city of Chicago. It's almost like Jesus sits back and says, well, I'm, I'm glad at what's going on at New Community because at least they're asking the good questions. And the minute you stop asking questions like this, the minute you get on the decline and death side of that curve. You know, when Jesus wrote to the seven churches of Revelation through the Spirit, those messages, if you read the seven letters in the book of Revelation, are full of two things, hope and warning. And that's what I'm trying to communicate with you here this morning. I have a lot of hope for new life. Man, I loved being here today. Just loved it. But I also want to give you a warning. Because I know churches that started out like you. But over time, they lost their missional emphasis. And they fell into the trap of institutionalism and Uncle Rico-ness. Don't let that happen to you, dear ones. Don't let that happen to you. I know we just met, but... One of the core assumptions of my life and ministry is this. There is no vitality without reality. I think that's true in our own lives, and it's true in the life of our church as well. There is no vitality without reality. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. That's reality. And the truth will set you free. That's the vitality part. And I'm here to tell you today that healthy missional churches are willing and able to honestly look in the mirror of God's Word, like parables that we read and interacted with today. And by the Spirit, they're able to look into the mirror of God's Word, confess the sins of the church and individuals, and they're able to make those adjustments with the help of the Holy Spirit, and then keep moving on on that adventurous journey of being a healthy missional church. I began this message with you this morning by telling you about Uncle Rico, a middle-aged man mired 
in mediocrity. I want to end it by telling you about a person in real life, Albert Kern. Albert Kern played football at North Park University from 1988 to 1992. And over the last 14 years, he has been employed as the head football coach at Steinmetz High School right here in the city of Chicago. Steinmetz has a student body of 2,450 people, 85% of whom come from low-income backgrounds or African-American or Latino. Albert Kern, who was an Anglo, had to look at himself in the mirror of truth and ask some pretty uncomfortable and painful questions after his high school football team lost every single game in the 2005 season. According to a recent Chicago Tribune article, Kern had to come up with a new strategy that extended far beyond the gridiron. Listen to what the reporter said. Kern realized that his players had to tackle their personal problems if they were ever going to win on the field. Some were young fathers juggling work, parenthood, athletics, and school. Coach Kern said, the losing season was terrible and I felt like I had let the kids down. I needed to make some changes. So Kern became a life coach, not just a football coach. A dramatic shift. His new approach helped him lead the team to a conference and divisional championship in 2006. And though the football season ended more than a month ago, he continues to be a part of his players' lives, keeping track of their academic progress and their personal well-being. It's not the kind of coaching Kern, age 36, received when he was the star running back at this Northwest Side High School nearly two decades ago. In those days, his coaches weren't as involved with their players off the field. But Steinmetz's principle says it's exactly what is needed to be successful in the Chicago public schools. The season's impact has been felt beyond the space between goalposts, the winning season, has inspired the entire school. I'm so grateful for what Coach has done for me, said Washington, a senior who made time to play football, work, and raise his young son. The man has taken an interest in me. He really means it when he says, let me help you. I thought he was going to yell at me, and instead he told me there's so much more I need to learn about raising a kid. I'm learning about football and getting help with being a parent. That makes you really want to play for the man. Kern said students like Washington helped him realize that he needed to change. It hit me one day after I was yelling at football players who worked to support their brothers and sisters, he said. Some are either parents or going to become parents. I needed to find a new way to reach them. I wish more churches were a lot like Albert Kern and less like Uncle Rico. Father, thank you for starting new community, for how you've blessed this church through their four years of life together. I thank you that by your Spirit they are a healthy missional church, 
And I thank you for the players who are in the game, making a difference with the gifts you've given to them in and through your spirit. And I pray for those who are sitting in the stands or warm in the bench, that they would gently hear your call and invitation to start to play, knowing that all the positions are different. But what an awesome way to feel your joy of making a difference with the gifts you've given to us. Help us to not bury those things in the ground like the servant did, but help us to use what you've given to us and multiply it for your glory and for the good of this city. Thank you so much for your spirit here. And I pray as Jesus prayed for his disciples that they would be one, even as you are one. That as you abide in individuals and in this body of believers, that through your presence here and the gifts that you've given, that they would bear much fruit, fruit that would last, fruit that would bring you much glory, and fruit that would be for the good of this city. And help them to feel your joy as they serve you with the power you provide. And I pray that you continue to bless them with even more. And I believe you can trust this church, God. I believe you can trust this church. And I pray that you would open the floodgates of heaven and pour down upon them all that they need to be about the Father's business. The business of love. The business of transforming lives and entire cities. And only through the power of your word and spirit. Bless them, Father, richly. In your name I pray. Amen.